You're listening to Nonprofit Confidential, episode number 26. Welcome back to Nonprofit Confidential. I'm your host, Sheila Nimishakavi, and I'm so thrilled that you're joining me here today. So today I'm sharing my interview with Gretchen Foskett with you. Gretchen is a physician by day and the co-founder of the Little Zebra Fund by night and any other spare moments she can piece together. The Little Zebra Fund really grew out of a love for genetics shared by Gretchen and her nonprofit business partner, Mora. They met during their medical genetics fellowship and both bonded over their desire to address the inequity facing their patients, even though they knew as physicians that genetic testing and receiving a diagnosis would help the patients that they serve, they found that sometimes insurance companies simply wouldn't cover the cost of the testing. So families were left with no ability to pay for expensive testing and were left with no answers. After seeing their patients struggle, Gretchen and Mora established the Little Zebra Fund to help families attain funding for testing. I love their story because it's such a quintessential nonprofit story. People who saw a need and decided they were going to do something about it. I just love that they have the heart and the initiative to take this on, and I think it really comes out in my conversation with Gretchen. In addition to their journey, Gretchen, of course, shares some wonderful advice for running a nonprofit as a side hustle, growing a nonprofit, finding a fiscal sponsor, and so much more. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Gretchen. Hi, Gretchen. Thank you so much for joining me on Nonprofit Confidential. How's everything going on your end? It's wonderful. Thank you so much. And we're just honored to be here. Thank you so much for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to share your story with our audience. So let's just dive right into it. Can you share a little bit about how Little Zebra Fund got started and maybe give a little bit of history about the story of how you and Maura met and decided to start the organization? Of course. So Maura and I met during our medical genetics fellowship training at Stanford, and she is actually a Bay Area native. And I had just moved to the Bay Area from Hawaii for the fellowship program. And the medical genetics fellowship at Stanford is a two-year clinical fellowship. And so what that means is that we were really focused on seeing patients, all patient care, inpatient and outpatient settings for those two years. And Maura and I had one year of overlap during her second year and my first year of fellowship. So during that year, we sat back-to-back in the Medical Genetics Fellows workroom at all hours of the day and night, (laughs) seeing patients, answering pages, making follow-up phone calls, writing notes, and battling insurance for a solid year. And I think, you know, we immediately, of course, got along well and definitely bonded over a mutual passion for our patients, but it was really that battling insurance piece that brought us together and inspired us to create Little Zebra Fund. That's amazing. So what kind of sparked the idea for Little Zebra Fund? Was it the battling with the insurance companies? Yeah, it was. It was kind of this cumulative effect of all of the battles we were having, largely to no avail on behalf of our patients that made us realize we had to do something to try to fix the problem. And so to kind of give a little bit more of an idea or background on the problem is that 
you know, we were constantly seeing patients and their families in our medical genetics clinic who were beautifully still holding on to hope for an answer after a really lengthy process of trying to find an answer in, in what we call a diagnostic odyssey. And they would get to see us. We would recommend the indicated and appropriate genetic testing. And then insurance companies would flat out deny coverage for the testing that we had recommended. And so it was just tremendously heartbreaking, heartbreaking for us, but mainly for these families and these patients that couldn't get an answer, didn't even have access to the potential to answer that really motivated us to to try to do something to help these families. Wow. Gosh. So what happens to a family if they're not able to afford the, the cost of the testing and actually get a definitive diagnosis? Yeah, great question. Unfortunately, for the most part, they continue on kind of the road they were already on. They they bounce around seeing various doctors and other medical professionals in various subspecialties, getting good care, being managed for the problems that have already manifested, but there's no sort of cohesive answer. And so it's hard to give the best, most appropriate care to a patient if you really don't know the underlying driving factor, what's causing all of this, and you don't know what's coming next. What are there other complications you need to look for? And so that's really where the sort of gap and the, the missing link occurs. It's these families are still getting good care from a variety of specialists, but there's nothing cohesive that kind of brings it all together. And that's so important to make sure we can take the best care of these patients. I see. So instead of being able to kind of get up ahead of, you know, any problems that might arise, if you knew what the diagnosis was, you're kind of treating symptoms as they occur. Exactly. Exactly. Instead of, for example, instead of knowing, gosh, this child is at risk of having an arrhythmia, so an abnormal rhythm of their heart at some point, and getting them hooked up with a cardiologist and making sure that they have regular graphs of their heart or EKGs done they might just have an arrhythmia and have an event at some point because we didn't even know to warn the family that this is something that could happen and therefore they need to see a a particular specialist for that. So that's definitely, you know, a risk of not having an answer. And it's also just really hard for these families, as you can imagine, not having an answer. They, there's this sense of community that they get by having an answer. They can immediately log on to various social media outlets, web pages, and start linking up with families that have children with the same diagnosis as soon as they have the diagnosis in hand. And that really changes their experience. They're able to, to kind of hear from those families, gosh, what have you done that has helped you on this journey? What are there things maybe that the doctor forgot to mention or things that I should know about? And so that that sense of community is really powerful and I think really helps on the emotional side of their journey as well. And so they're missing out on that as well. Oh gosh, I've I never even thought about that angle. It's so, so, so true that having that that, you know, definitive diagnosis opens up all these other doors. I mean, obviously the medical care aspect as well, mm-hmm. but just the, from the personal and family side of things. You know, once they have a diagnosis, they can they can actually reach out to to form that community. Exactly, exactly, and I guess kind of a a mixture between sort of the the emotional side and the straightforward medical side of things for the patient themselves. There's also this piece of being able to counsel the other family members. That's a huge piece of the puzzle. We can tell the parents this is new in your child, and so there's a very, very low, less than 1% chance that it would recur again in future pregnancies. Or we could say, gosh, one of you actually 
carries the same variant that your child has, even though you aren't manifesting the same symptoms, and therefore it's a much higher risk in future pregnancies. And so you can give them options in terms of knowing ahead of time. They could test the pregnancy in the future and, and know what to expect. Their sisters and brothers could be tested. So it's really powerful to have this information and definitely changes the entire course of their life once they have an answer. Wow. So the need for a little zebra fund is so, <laughs> so apparent. Was there, you know, a particular moment in your story that you can point to where, you know, you guys just had this moment of we have to start, we have to do something about this? Was there like, you know, a turning point or any particular experience that was like the inflection point for you guys? That's a good question. I think each patient that we ran into this problem with really continued to, to hammer this point home that this problem wasn't going away. And so I really think more than one particular patient, it was just truly a cumulative effect of feeling the pain and going through the pain with these families over and over and over again. And, you know, after two years of pretty intensive training, you know, you're going through all of these emotional, scary moments with families. And it's really, it's really just that power of being able to give them an answer. It's not easy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's definitely not necessarily always a joyous or happy occasion when you're disclosing a, a diagnosis, because of course there can be pretty significant complications with these. But I think it was the, the cumulative effect of, of seeing that contrast where we were able to give answers to some families and then to a lot of families not being able to give them answers that just piled up. And finally, we got to the point where it was incredibly frustrating. And we felt like it was this massive health inequity that was not being addressed. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny because, you know, all of the, you know, nonprofits we've interviewed on Nonprofit Confidential and just everyone I've worked with, it seems to be a very similar story of like, you just recognize this, you know, truly an injustice and inequity where, some people are able to kind of move along their path and others are kind of just yeah. encounter barrier after barrier. And, you know, organizations were founded in order to kind of break down those barriers. So it sounds like that's kind of what you guys are doing over there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> On a personal note, where, where does your love of genetics stem from? <laughs> well, I guess I've always been really fascinated and motivated by puddles and challenges, especially in medicine. I mean, I definitely loved the opportunity to care for every child that I met in my general pediatrics training, but it, I think it was really the patients that had very complex presentations that just added this extra level of inspiration for me. So that's, that's definitely part of it. I've also always really loved the education side of medicine, and the field of genetics really provides a lot of extra opportunities to educate. Of course, mainly kind of as we've been talking about, that's to patients and their parents at the time of the diagnosis to, for example, let them know what to expect to provide counseling on recurrence risk. But genetics also provides me the opportunity to occasionally discuss a diagnosis in depth. So at a different level of education with colleagues in another, in another subspecialty field, for example. So it's just, it's such a unique field of medicine. And there's honestly so much to love about it. But I think those are probably two two major contributors to kind of what drove me to, to pursue a career in, in medical genetics. Very cool. Yeah, I'm a total nerd. So I would love to nerd out about <laughs> you and stuff with you anytime. <laughs> I think that's fascinating yes. as well. And it 
you know, there's so much to learn. There's so much we haven't uncovered quite yet. So <laughs> definitely yes, a blossoming field. Evolving field. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> for sure. So going from, you know, having a medical background and going through years and years and years of training to now start a nonprofit, what has been like the the hardest part of kind of making that pivot over to now taking on a nonprofit journey? Mm. Well, there have definitely been, as you might imagine, several challenges. We neither of us had a business background or accounting degrees, so there's there's many levels that we could have, and we did face some initial challenges with. But we, I think, one thing that was very helpful for us, we actually decided to pursue our 501c3 status initially through a fiscal sponsor, and so we have a sponsoring nonprofit organization that really, honestly, came in clutch at the early first few months when we needed all of that admin and legal support to set up contracts with labs. So that was a a huge, huge sort of almost just confidence boost for us to know that we had someone that had our back and that we could ask questions about the best way to approach things. So that was that was super helpful. And I think the the biggest ongoing challenge that we have, just given our background of really only seeing patients, is fundraising. <laughs> that has been a big challenge for us in all aspects. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because a lot of nonprofits start because of a passion for a cause. And so there's, there is always that kind of little jump between what you're used to doing to now entering this crazy world of nonprofits and figuring it all out. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But I love that you guys went with a fiscal sponsor to start with because, you know, I know a lot of organizations will jump right to getting the 501c3, but having a fiscal sponsor, like you said, gives you that confidence to know that you have all of your, you know, financials taken care of and the legal aspect, but it's also proof of concept to know that somebody's willing to support your cause. So clearly there's, you know, there's support for it out in the community beyond just what you guys have seen through the work that you do. Gosh, that's so true. I don't think we've even ever thought of it that way. That is a really wonderful way to think about it. You know, they did have to kind of buy into this concept and believe that what we were going to do would would have an impact and was going to be needed and used. So that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you guys are definitely filling in a major, major, major gap. And I'm sure any family who's ever, you know, had to go through the process of trying to get a diagnosis will will vouch for that. (laughs) (laughs) So since you guys do see patients, obviously, as a full-time practicing physician, how do you balance your career with running a nonprofit? I mean, a physician is probably one of the most demanding careers out there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's tough to answer and it is tough to find the balance. I was fortunate this past our first year for the launch, my co-founder Mora did continue full-time clinical practice and I was able to step away and just do part-time work and dedicate part-time each week to helping get the Little Zebra Fund off the ground. So that was definitely really helpful. But even despite that, just because there is so much that has to happen in that first year, there was definitely a give and take. There were many weekends that I spent working rather than relaxing or taking time off. But honestly, as long as the work is enjoyable and rewarding, which it certainly is with Little Zebra Fund, then it doesn't feel like as much of a take. So I think that, you know, organization certainly plays a huge part in creating more balance for both of us. That applies to workflow of individual tasks, as well as general life scheduling. 
in the latter sense, it sounds pretty drab, but I found that if I schedule all of my fun plans and time off way in advance on the calendar, the time's less likely to get eroded. And it certainly doesn't make it any less fun once I get to it. (laughs) So that has helped. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) So I know we've covered kind of like some of the challenges with running a nonprofit, but what would you say is like the, the most rewarding aspect or your favorite parts about what you do? Hmm. It's hard to list one thing. Honestly, it's probably the opportunity to meet so many fabulous people doing great things within our community, the community that we're working in, the rare disease community. I have met parents and friends of rare disease patients, other geneticists or genetic counselors from around the country, and in fact, a couple from around the world, founders of other organizations that support the rare disease community passionate employees working at genetic testing companies or biopharmaceutical companies. I mean, I could just go on and on. There are so many amazing people within this sphere or scope doing amazing things for this community. And so that's really inspirational and motivating every day to know that we're not alone. We're all kind of trying to attack similar problems from different angles for the same community. So we're all out there advocating together. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned, you know, working with with different partners and you guys are all kind of attacking the same problem, but from different angles. How did you guys decide on your model? Yeah, that's a great question. It took some time. You know, we, before we linked up with our fiscal sponsor and achieved 501c3 status, this little zebra fund was a dream and was something in process that we were navigating the best way to approach for about a year or a year and a half. Um, So it it definitely went through a lot of evolutions about the best way to approach this problem. And I think, you know, in the end, we, we really wanted something that would provide the fastest solution to be able to help, even if it was a small number of patients, a small number of patients as fast as possible. And so rather than going the just focusing on legislation, advocacy, sort of at a policy level, we really kind of switched gears completely and said, you know, unfortunately, that could take years and years, and there are so many families that need us right now. And so that's really what drove us to say, it just has to be a fund. There has to be a pool of money. And then from that, we need to figure out the best way to ensure that the patients that are in most need are are getting helped by this and to make sure that the people ordering the testing know what they're doing and so that these patients are most likely to to have the right test ordered for them. But I think that was really the big sort of pivot point at the beginning was, do we go the advocacy changing policy route or do we just go help patients immediately as long as we can get funding? <laughs> so that's that's the route we chose. Very cool. Yeah. And it's interesting because you can always like eventually expand to also include advocacy if you guys want to. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. We actually, that's a great point. We have two volunteers right now and they both approached us saying that they were really interested in what we were doing. And one of them is actually a a neurology fellow at UCSF currently, and she's very interested in the policy side of things and advocacy. And so she is sort of our advocacy volunteer and has really been trying to navigate and think about ways that even now in real time, as well as in the future, how we can kind of get involved with that while not taking away from our focus on serving patients now, but start adding that in a little bit, as you're saying. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Very cool. And so kind of just like thinking about, you know, maybe expanding into advocacy and going down that route, have you guys, you know, started thinking about where you see Little Zebra Fund going in the future? 
Yeah. So I think, you know, our main goal is to expand our geographic scope. That's our, our sort of biggest push would be to figure out how do we ensure we have solid, consistent funding coming in from individuals and organizations and that that contribution continues to grow. We think that it would continue to grow with proof of concept as we continue to serve more patients and continue to get results for patients. And we think that that would probably lend to that. And then the the real focus would be getting beyond the scope of just the Bay Area. We love the Bay Area. We both trained here. We love serving this patient population that we had the opportunity to meet um, and that helped us gain our training. But there are so many patients across the country that need our help. And so I think that's our, our big goal, our long-term sort of reach goal is to be nationwide. It won't happen immediately. <laughs> we know that. We understand that. We would like to maybe do California-wide as a next step or West Coast-wide, depending on how things go. Yeah, very cool. So, okay, so kind of talked about going, looking forward, but if we take a step back and look at the past really quickly, what was the first thing that you guys, like what was the first step you and Maura took when you decided to start Little Zebra Fund? Like, you know, just the very first thing you both had this point where you'd seen so many patients come through and it's like that cumulative effect of, you know, not being able to kind of having your hands tied. And so you decided to start this fund. And so what was the very first thing you guys did to kind of get this off the ground? Hmm. I think the first thing we did was we started having planning sessions and it was really focused on, it was two things. One was kind of what we called the fun arm, and the other was the practical, how are we going to do this arm? And so every time we had a meeting, which we were having in-person meetings probably about once once every one to two weeks in that initial year of kind of brainstorming and figuring out how we were going to do this. And the sort of practical arm of it was how do we get 501c3 status and making that decision between do we go the fiscal sponsor route or do we try to do this on our own and getting a lawyer in place to help with that paperwork, et cetera. And then the fun arm, which, of course, was something that easily dominated our conversations if we weren't careful, because it was so fun to think about, was, you know, what is our image? What sort of social media campaigns are we going to have? What do we want our website to look like? And those are all such fun things to think about, which, you know, it was great, but it is really important in that early phase to figure out how are you even going to get 501c3 status, because you have to have that before you can do all the fun things. (laughs) Yes, definitely. (laughs) Very cool. What would you say that you are most proud of so far? Hmm. I think probably the number of patients that we have served. We have covered $50,000 in clinically indicated genetic testing that insurance refused to cover for patients in need. And that's only since the very end of February when we launched on February 28th as a very baby organization. So that's something to be hugely proud of. And it does excite us every day. And on top of that, we have been absolutely delighted to see that almost two-thirds of the Little Zebra-funded patients have been getting answers through the testing that we funded. And that's actually a really high percentage for the field of genetics. Wow. That is so cool. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it's it's definitely really rewarding. The, the whole process has been rewarding, but especially now that we're seeing results come through and, and see that we, you know, in fact, are changing lives and to occasionally get some feedback from the families, it definitely brings tears to the eye. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh, for sure. (laughs) And do you guys get to interact with the patients that you serve? Or is there like a level of separation between the fund and the patients? Yeah, that's a great question. It was something that we really had to grapple with and make a decision on at the beginning. We really don't have any interaction with the patients unless the patients subsequently ask their provider to get in touch with us because they want to give us direct feedback or thank us specifically. Otherwise, they're really isn't any connection with the patients. And we, it was a hard decision, but we chose to do that for several reasons. But really, we wanted to take the burden off of families. And so our entire website and the entire application process is very provider focused. We didn't want the families on top of everything they're already going through and this giant odyssey to then have to hear about Little Zebra Fund, go through the process of applying, and kind of just deal with one extra thing in their life. And providers are already doing it anyway, battling insurance. And so we just kind of made the executive decision that it should be the provider that contacts us, that sends in the application, that facilitates the testing, because ultimately they're the ones that will be recommending the test. They've seen the patient. So only that person can recommend the best test for them and they'll be giving the answer. And so it kind of made sense to really keep it, keep that unit of provider and patient intact and have us just truly be a fund. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I love that because it's easy as like the founder of a nonprofit or even just working at a nonprofit to feel like you want to get the fulfillment of interacting with those that you serve and making sure that, you know, the the service that you guys are providing is getting the intended outcomes. But I feel like you guys almost went the other way of, of thinking of the user first. So thinking about what would be best for the families and designing a system around that you know, I, I love that because even though I feel like it, in some ways it could mean that you guys don't get the same level of like fulfillment, like you don't get to hear all the stories <laughs> about right, everything you guys right. have done, but it's better for the patients. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you. I I, I think I hope that it, it does make it easier and better for them. And we, we did try to build in at least a little kind of follow up on our end. Um, it's really mainly to be able to track track results and be able to show that gosh, we really are getting a high percentage of positive results and answers for families to try to motivate more organizations and individuals to contribute. And so we do have a built-in part of the application process where we say, hey, provider, are you willing to, and do you confirm that you will at least give us a one-liner at the end of it all? Was this test diagnostic or was it not diagnostic? They don't have to give us any details. We don't need to know anything more than that. But that does give us a little bit of that woohoo fulfillment feeling and it also allows (laughs) us to track the data. So (laughs) yes, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And so how do you guys get word out there to providers about Little Zebra Fund? Yeah. So since we are Bay Area focused and that's kind of our, our catchment area right now, it was very easy because we're both based here. So we spoke to the providers that we knew at the institutions that have genetics organizations or genetics groups. And so it was honestly very easy. I think that's going to be something that we truly haven't started to really navigate how we would do that on a broader scope when we don't know all of the medical genetics providers in the rest of the the west side of the country or the rest of the country in general once we hopefully expand that far. But yeah, it was very easy. We made a couple of presentations. Um, we made one at Stanford, of course, because we were very much still in connection with that entire group there. And otherwise, it was kind of reaching out by email and saying, we can come by and talk to you more if you would like to hear more. But here's the deal. Here's what we're trying to do. 
this will be launching on February 28th. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. So knowing what you know now, I mean, I know you're only probably what, like, uh, what, like five months, six months into <laughs> maybe seven <laughs> months now in <laughs> to, you know, having the fund like fully functioning, but knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your former self? So it could be, you know, to yourself on February 28th or yourself like two years ago when you, whenever you guys like kind of had the first inklings of wanting to start this organization. Yes. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your former self? Yeah. I think probably to celebrate the little wins a little bit more and to worry less about when the next big wins will come. (laughs) I think that's truly something that I personally could work on. And I think anyone starting a project or a company or a nonprofit, I mean, you're so focused on what can we do next? How can we get bigger? How can we help the patients more? That's easy to lose sight of the small wins you're having along the way. And I definitely looking back, even as far as getting our 5.1c through through our fiscal sponsor. We definitely celebrated, but now thinking about it, I, I think to myself, gosh, we should have celebrated that win more. That was a huge win. Yeah. That's how we got started. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. It is very funny to think that because it's so true. You know, you're you're so focused on the big picture of helping as many people as possible that these little, you know, little things kind of pass you by. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely understand that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Since, you know, running a nonprofit is so is so different, of course, from your medical training, what tools or resources did you find that were really helpful in just in navigating that whole journey? Mm. Probably something called Planoly and then Box and Excel have been the tools that I use the most. So I don't know if you've heard of Planoly or have used it in, in your line of work and with your organization. Is that like for planning social media? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that was really helpful. That actually was something that was shared with me early on by a really close friend in the Bay Area. And it's been really helpful from a social media planning standpoint, exactly as you say, and from that organization and time management standpoint, because we do... I usually do two weekly posts. So one on Wednesdays and I try to do one on Saturdays or Sundays. And especially for the Wednesday posts that are always the educational post, I can create and schedule those posts months in advance. So I'll do 15 at a time and I'll be scheduled out for three months, which is great because then it's already up there. All the information is there. It goes at a, at the same time every Wednesday. So people are, are people that are following us or or watching our account know to expect, hey, on Wednesday at five, there's an educational post and I like those. So I want to sign on and see what they did. That's definitely been super helpful. Box, of course, is very user-friendly and has been a really helpful tool. And they actually have a HIPAA compliance. So a way to kind of make sure that all the patient data remains secure. They have a special platform for that and they offer a nonprofit rate. So that's amazing. And so our providers can direct upload the application forms there. So that's been really helpful and helps us be confident that this patient secure information is in fact staying secure the way we'd want it to be. Very cool. So Okay, I have to I have to ask, can we dig in a little bit to your planning <laughs> and to your kind of social media? Because well, that's how I found you guys. <laughs> I fell in love with your <laughs> Instagram account. <laughs> and 
<laughs> it's so beautiful and so educational. So mm-hmm. how do you guys like plan out your content? I know you're saying so Wednesdays are educational days. And so do you guys plan that out like based on themes, like based on, you know, what, like based on, you know, how like every cause has like a month or a week or something. Do you guys plan your content based on that? We actually don't. So our educational posts are really the only sort of organization throughout the year is that it's every other week and it's a discover a diagnosis post, which means we describe a specific genetic condition, a few details about it, as well as how many patients might be affected by it within the country or within the world, and then what sort of testing is recommended to be able to diagnose that condition. Because at the end of the day, we are focused on getting testing for patients. So we, we try to include that piece. And then alternating with that on our Wednesday post, it's these definition posts. And so we have our little zebra asking the question, what is a medical geneticist? What is a variant? Because these are words that come up in our other posts that we feel like it's important to have those explained because they're just words that aren't, they don't come up as, as much in, in just the typical day-to-day language. And so it's important to kind of provide that education so that people know what we're talking about and can hopefully better connect with our mission. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so true because you kind of forget, like for all of us in all of our fields, we forget that we all use our language that we're used to, <laughs> but not everyone knows it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think to, to your question about, you know, focusing on, is it Cancer Awareness Month or a specific Conditions Awareness Month or day, we, we've toyed with that a little bit. And we love when we do have the opportunity to do an additional post on that. It's a great way to kind of support other people within that rare disease community that we love connecting with anyway. And so when we do have a, a few extra minutes, we'll try to see, gosh, what what awareness day is it today or what awareness month is it? And try to do an extra post on that. But it's it's definitely not something that's as consistent as we would probably like it to be. But we do really enjoy being able to do that whenever we can. Yeah. I mean, I am a huge proponent of, especially for like small nonprofits, small businesses, no matter who it is, done is better than perfect. So (laughs) getting the posts out there and getting your information out there in a way that's feasible for you guys is the number one thing you can do. So (laughs) any audience members who are, you know, a member of a small organization and because social media is just one of those things that can really get put on the back burner. So schedule them out and just kind of do what you can. <laughs> exactly. It's very helpful. <laughs> so how has the Little Zebra Fund evolved since, you know, the, the idea first came to you guys? Oh, in so many ways. <laughs> I, I imagine that's the same with any nonprofit in the first year of existence. It's just full of change or evolution and growth. And definitely having a flexible and open mindset is super important as a result of that. But yeah, we, we've definitely grown uh, in terms of the number of people that follow us on social media. That's been fun to track and see the growth there in terms of people that are interested in our mission and that support our mission and what we're trying to do. We've also definitely grown in terms of the number, number of people that we can go to to ask for support. Of course, we have our executive director at at our fiscal sponsor, but we have our three advisory board members and two project-based volunteers now. And of course, the number of patients that we have helped has also continued to grow. So there's been a lot of sort of physical growth there that's been fun to see, to see that change and that growth. Otherwise, I think you know, our internet and social media presence and branding has also really evolved. 
especially since November when we achieved our 501c3 status. We, at that time, we didn't have any social media presence. We only had a landing page on the internet. And now we have an entire website with multiple tabs and a live donation page. And our big social media presence is Instagram. And then we direct link our Instagram to Facebook and to Twitter. And then our image itself, I'm not sure you know what the best sort of word for that is, but we we started with this inspirational image that we absolutely love of our little adorable zebra with his mane flowing on his diagnostic odyssey and boat. And we've still maintained that because we love it so much. And we just recently expanded to kind of have an official logo in addition to that, that also incorporates our name. So those have been sort of big branding changes. And then, of course, naturally, as we've kind of touched on a little bit, there have been a lot of evolutions and small tweaks to our process that after every few months that we're serving patients and interacting with providers, we sort of reassess where we are and see, is this process the most streamlined that it can be on our end and for the providers trying to find that balance? And as we navigate and think about the future, will this process that we're using right now, will that really work? on a larger scale. So it's it's a continual evolution, but it's it's fun and beautiful to experience and watch, that's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that's such a good such a good tip to think about your processes as a way of you know, to evaluate your process to make sure that it's scalable. Cuz a lot of what we do in like smaller organizations, it's kind of stopgap measures. We're just trying to, you know, get as much done in a day as possible, but sometimes when you can take a moment to step back and evaluate the process and make sure that it's any kinks in the process can get fixed, it allows you to scale so much quicker. Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And when you reach that point to where, you know, you're dealing with thousands of patients, there's having those processes in place will just make it that much easier down the road. (laughs) Yes. Yes, that that is our hope. And definitely, I agree with you. I think it's I think it's a good thing that we're doing and a good thing to, to always keep in mind on any project. Yeah, absolutely. Just out of curiosity, for keeping a close eye on things process related. So because you're dealing with medical diagnoses, you obviously have to be HIPAA compliant. And I'm sure your forms and contracts and all have to be very tight. So do you have like a law firm that you work with or is that through the fiscal sponsor? Like how do you guys get, make sure that your operations are all like compliant? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's mainly through our fiscal sponsor. So they have a legal team. And so anytime there's a question of, you know, do we need to have a disclaimer at the bottom of our website? Or as you're saying, what sort of form do we need to give the family when we're asking them if they'd be willing to share their photo and a little bit of information about their child for our little zebra inspirations? Or even when we were setting up the contracts with labs, all of these things, of course, required some legal support. And so that did come from our fiscal sponsor, which was huge and really beneficial. And it is very, very costly to find that on your own. And so we were very lucky to have that sort of built into the sponsor. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I'm I'm a huge proponent of fiscal sponsorship. I feel like when you're starting out, especially in a field such as yours, it it's it's such a blessing to kind of have just know it's all taken care of <laughs> and you can focus on exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. You can focus on serving the patients, trying to make sure that what you think is going to work actually will work. And then in the future you can navigate 
whether it's a good decision to go out on your own, or I know some, some nonprofits stay with their fiscal sponsor forever, because like you're saying, there is this beautiful built in support system. And in many ways, that really helps you focus on your mission and what you're trying to do. And so that's something that we, we don't know at what point or, you know, really when that will change for us, or if it will, but it's something that we're continuously thinking about for the future. Speaking of the future, (laughs) what do you think is next for Little Zebra Fund and what are you most excited about? In the immediate sense, this is a really exciting three to four weeks ahead. We have this today, which is super exciting. Um, (laughs) And the next week, I will be attending the Global Genes Rare Patient Advocacy Summit in San Diego. So I'll have the opportunity to meet a lot of other rare disease advocates and be inspired about what other people are doing, and also to maybe increase a little bit more awareness about us and what we're doing. A couple weeks after that, so on October 4th, we have our fall fundraiser, which we're really looking forward to because it's our first in-person fundraiser since our launch. So that's really big. Yes. And I guess more on a long-term scale, looking forward to the opportunity to, to help an increasing number of patients. Again, hopefully expanding our scope to that wider geographic area. Amazing. So what is the fundraiser that's coming up? It is a Cheers for Charity wine and heavy hors d'oeuvres and silent auction for about three hours on that Friday night. And it's, we're keeping it kind of intimate. You know, it was a a big thing to bite off the idea of doing a major, major size or major scale fundraising event for our first one. It just, the, the sheer cost of it became pretty overwhelming right away. And we thought, gosh, you know, we are small, we do have limited funding and we really want all of our funding to go to patients in need. And so we don't really want to spend money on some giant fundraiser. And so it was hard to kind of make that decision. And so we we really went for a more intimate fundraiser feel. And so it's for about 50 people, kind of a, a meet the co-founders type of fundraiser. Very cool. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Just to wrap up here, I do ask one question and it's kind of random, but <laughs> I'm a huge proponent of, you know, self-care and you know the work that we do in the nonprofit space can be can be exhausting and especially when you're running your nonprofit as your side hustle, it can be especially <laughs> tiring. So, do you have any activities that you do for self-care? Well, I love hiking and playing board games with my husband <laughs> and then <laughs> Skyping, FaceTiming with family and friends just to keep in touch. It's so amazing that we have those resources and can actually see people to stay in touch these days. And then I love going to spin class. It's always been one of my favorite jams, just getting on the bike, hearing some good music and kind of tuning out and just getting a good workout in. Oh, I'm so with you on that. I love a good spin class. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's fabulous. Cool. Well, thank you so, so, so much for joining me here today and sharing your story. I know my audience is going to learn so much from your journey. Well, thank you so much for having us. And yeah, we just, we really appreciate this opportunity and the opportunity to talk to you and meet you and, and get our message out there a little bit more. It's been wonderful. Absolutely. I look forward to seeing you guys expand all over the U.S. (laughs) Come out east. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thanks so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. I really hope you found Gretchen's story both enlightening and inspirational. I know I sure did. She offered some really valuable pieces of advice. 
To find my takeaways from this interview and get the show notes, please head over to thirdsuite.com forward slash little zebra fund. All right, that's all I have for you today. I will talk to you soon. 